Next letter to the Romans and chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to read from verse 31, Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord." When we started to look in this passage uh, a few weeks back now, we saw that Paul has made some great statements in verses 28 through to 30. He said that God works for the good of those who love him, and he says that we've been called according to his purpose. He then fills that out and says that God knew us beforehand. He decided beforehand that we should become like his son, those he predestined he called, those he called he justified, those he justified he glorified. A great statement about what God has done for us. And then Paul's response to that is to fire out five questions. And last time we were looking at the first of those questions in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the first question. God is clearly for us. He chose us before he'd made anything. He decided beforehand that we should become like Jesus. He then called us, he justified us, and the decision has been made, glorified, although that is still in the future. God is clearly for us. Then, of course, many can be against us, but who are they compared with the one who is for us? That's the first question and Paul's answer. His second question then in verse 32, which is what we're going to look at this morning, builds on what is said in verse 31 and, and fills it out. It explores that first one. He says, He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In what way is God for us? Well, in this way. He didn't spare his son but gave him up for us all. And then the, the, this question, how will he not also along with him graciously give us everything. In this verse, Paul speaks about the great thing that God has done and then argues from the greater thing to present a lesser thing. If God has done the greater thing, then surely he will also do the smaller thing. That's the way he argues. And he looks there in verse 32 at something that God didn't do. Then he speaks about what God did do 
and then what God will do. So let's look at it in that order. First of all, what he didn't do. He didn't spare his own son. That was what he didn't do. The the focus here, obviously, the cross. He's talking about the death of Jesus. That's the focus of this verse. Indeed, it's the focus of the Bible, and it needs to be our focus, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the focus of all that we believe. It's the focus for our faith now, our ongoing faith in God. It's the focus of all our worship, the wonder of what happened at the cross. That's a very good question to ask people who are coming to talk with us about difficulties they've got, problems they've got in life and so on, or just their difficulty in believing. To ask this question, what do you really believe about the cross? What's happening there at the cross? What do you really believe about that? It's a very important question. And how we answer that question will say a lot about where we are with God. What do you really believe about the cross? Well, we'll explore some of that this morning. So what God didn't do, he didn't spare his own son. And those words echo some words that you'll find back in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, of course, was written in Hebrew, but early on it was translated into Greek for the benefit of those who didn't know Hebrew. And the the Greek expression In Genesis 22, verse 12, you'll find there is identical to the expression here. And it's a very significant reference. In Genesis chapter 22, you read about Abraham. For those who don't know the story, just to sketch it in, God had promised Abraham a son. He he had that promise when he was relatively young. He and his wife were relatively young, but the years passed and they had no children. And the promise is there. Abraham keeps believing God, and they remain childless. Into old age, and they remain childless. And then, miraculously, in their old age, Sarah, this elderly lady, becomes pregnant. It is an absolute wonder. It is a miracle. God has been faithful. And in their old age, they become parents. Their son Isaac grows up. And then in chapter 22 of of Genesis, you have the heading there, Abraham tested. Because God says to Abraham, it's a test of Abraham's faith in him, Abraham's commitment to him, He says to Abraham, I want you to take your son to the mountain I'm going to show you, and I want you to give him to me. And the way he was to give him back to God was by sacrificing him. Now, of course, don't try this one at home. (laughs) If if you felt God was saying that to you, of course, you would immediately look in the Bible and see things like, thou shalt not kill, and so on. Of course, Abraham didn't have the Old Testament. And he's being tested. Take your son to the mountain I'm going to tell you. Give him to me. He's God's gift. They've waited for this gift all their lives. They've got their dear son. See him growing up. He's a fine lad. Now give him back to God. Abraham goes. He takes his son with him. And he builds an altar there. Bound his son Isaac. 
laid him on the altar. Of course, we don't know how, Isaac, how old Isaac was and what kind of conversation is going on here. Dad, what are you doing? Did Isaac even cooperate? We don't know. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. And then this, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And that expression, you have not withheld from me, is you did not spare. Because you did not spare your son, your only son. And again in uh, verse uh, 16, God says, I swear by myself that because you've done this and have not withheld your son, you didn't spare your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. So there are the words back in the Old Testament. And here it says, he, did not, he who did not spare his own son. It's referring back to that story. Abraham didn't spare his son, but God did. God spared Abraham's son. But he did not spare his own son. His, he, he allowed his son to die. He spared Abraham's son, but not his own. And it, it stresses his own son. It, it doesn't just say he who did not spare his son, but it's his own son. In contrast to Abraham's who he did spare. But also, surely in contrast to the other sons that have been referred to earlier in the chapter. Because earlier in this chapter, in verse 14, it says, Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The, te- the Spirit testifies with our spirit, we're God's children. If we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, and so on. We have become sons of God. There's a special son. There's the firstborn son. His own son. And what, what it's saying here, he didn't spare his own son... But actually, he spared us. We were the ones who deserved to die. He spared sons. All of us were spared. If we're saved in Christ, if we've received him as Savior, our sin passed away, punishment passed away. We didn't spare his own son, his own dear son. He who did not spare his own son. That's what he didn't do. But what did he do? Well, he gave him up for us all. Or it could be translated, he handed him over for us all. And if you use those words, which are perfectly legitimate, you'll find the same words several times in the end, final chapters of the Gospels. Exactly the same expression is found there. Luke Luke 22. In Luke 22 and verse 6 about Judas. Verse 3, it says, Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them. To hand Jesus over. Judas 
handed Jesus over. In Matthew 27, Matthew 27 and verse 2, or verse 1, early in the morning all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. Judas has handed Jesus over to them. They have now got Jesus in their power, and they make the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Judas handed him over. The chief priests and the elders handed him over. And then in Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15 and verse 15, Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Judas handed him over, the chief priests and the elders of the people handed him over, and finally Pilate handed him over. And here in Romans chapter 8, it says, The Father handed him over. We have one handing Jesus over for money. We have others handing Jesus over for envy. And we have one handing him over for fear. But the Father handed him over because he loved us. Handed over. You can look at the cross in all kinds of ways, and many people do. They look at it as a purely human tragedy. Here we have A good man, an innocent man, demonstrating self-sacrifice, demonstrating passive resistance. We see here a tragedy, a man who did no one any harm, finally overtaken by evil people who hated him and killed him. It can be viewed in that way. And then we can attribute guilt to the people who did that. We can attribute guilt to Judas, guilt to the Jews who handed him over, guilt to the Romans who had him crucified. We can view it as a purely human activity. Well, it was a human activity, and no one was innocent, but you can't just understand the cross from that point of view. What do you believe about the cross? That's the question. What do you believe about the cross? Now, the Father handed him over. God handed his Son over. He didn't spare his own son, but handed him over for us all. This is not just a human tragedy. This is God doing something. This is not a plan gone wrong. This is a plan working out. It was always the Father's intention. It was always God's plan that this was how rebellious people could be forgiven. This was how rebellious people could be saved. Their sin could be punished in one who had no sin to punish. One who had no sin could, as it were, assume the sin of the guilty, become a substitute and die in their place. This was always the plan. It's not a plan gone wrong. It's a plan gone gloriously Right, right back in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53. Wonderful, wonderful chapter. As we head towards Easter, meditate in Isaiah 53. Read it through slowly. Read it again and again and then pray it. It's wonderful. Isaiah chapter 53, but in verse 6, it says, We all like sheep have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who is doing this? It's God. God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is God's action. And then later on, verse 10 in Isaiah 53, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Judas handed him over. The Jewish leaders handed him over. The Roman governor handed him over. But behind all of that, God is handing him over. The Father is handing him over. But even more wonderfully, if it can be more wonderful, in Galatians, when Paul is writing to the Galatians in chapter 2 and verse 20, Galatians 2 verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself or handed himself over for me. The Father handed the Son over, but the Son is no victim of a cruel father. Paul is saying, no, Jesus handed himself over. It's his action as well. God, Father, Son, and Spirit united in this. Some have misrepresented it as if Jesus is the innocent Son and a cruel Father kills him. No, no, no. This is God, Father, Son, and Spirit involved in a marvelous plan. And Jesus the Son gave himself, handed himself over. Was it Judas? Well, yes, he was guilty but it was God's plan. Was it the Jewish leaders envious of this so-called Messiah? Well, yes, they were envious. He is the Messiah, but it's God. Was it Pilate washing his hands of it, afraid of the Jews and handing him over? No, it's God. It's the Son setting his face. He's going to the cross. He's doing it. What didn't God do? He didn't spare his own son. What did he do? He handed him over. And it says he handed him over for us all. That little word for means instead of us. In our place. He handed him over for us. Instead of us, a substitute for us, for us all. Who, who's the us all? Does that mean Everyone will now be saved. Everyone will now go to heaven. There is no hell. It will be empty because he died for everyone. No, it's who it's talking about. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Those God foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Who's the us all? Well, these brothers, the ones that he has called, those he has chosen, always planned, a great number. But it's not everyone. There is a need to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. There is a need to repent. There is a need to believe. There is a need to receive this amazing gift. It's not that everyone ultimately be saved and there will be no justice. No, 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 no. Jesus took the place of us all, his family, his brothers, those who believe in him. 
And so, we need to be and we can be convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt of his amazing love. He didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. That's, that's the focus of the passage. That's, that's the great thing that God has done, and we need to focus on it. It's amazing. That's why the hymn writers, songwriters, down through the ages have always concentrated on the amazing love of God demonstrated in the cross. It wasn't just a human tragedy. It's a divine triumph. It's God. God intervening in an amazing way. He spared Abraham's son. He doesn't spare his own. And his son hands himself over. The father hands him over through the guilty actions of other people so that we have a substitute. We have a savior. We have someone who takes our guilt away. Amazing, amazing. But Paul doesn't stop there. Although it would be good and just focus on that and worship God because of it. But Paul moves on and says, if God would do that, he who didn't spare his own son and gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul is arguing from the great thing that God has done to the much smaller thing, the lesser thing. The, the greater includes the lesser we, as we move on to look at the lesser thing that God will graciously give us all things, we don't want to lose our focus. As we look at what God will do, we don't want to lose sight of what he has done. And in a sense, we don't want to turn away from that, but when we look at what he will do, we want to look at it in the context of what he has done, because it's important we see it in that context, if you understand what I mean. We never want to turn away from the cross, we never want to turn away from the amazing thing that God has done that, there. But looking at that, we need to see what he will do because of that. What will he do? Well, he will, along with him, graciously give us everything. So Paul here is bringing great assurance of what we can expect from God in our experience. That assurance is founded on the truth of what God has done. It's not just optimism. It's confidence that is based, if you'll forgive the word, on doctrine. We need to know the truth about the cross. We need to understand what's happening there. We need to marvel at it if our confidence is to be well-founded. So we've seen something, that we've glanced at what God has done. He didn't spare his own son. He handed him over for us all. Well then, question, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Graciously give. It's an expression of liberality, freedom, generosity, just giving. The extent of God's grace is demonstrated at the cross. The cross is amazing generosity. God gave his son for us. Well then, if God has given that, then he's not going to withhold anything. There was nothing good in us, everything good in his son. He gives his son for us. You think the one for the other makes no sense when we look at who he is and who we are, but he gave his son for us. That is amazing. 
Well, then he will graciously give us all things. The greater includes the lesser. Just imagine some wealthy person takes a liking to you and says, I want to write out a check for you. Your eyes light up. And you watch as he writes 25,000 pounds and is about to put only, and you say, you couldn't add 50p, could you? Well, of course he's going to put 50p on. I mean, if he's going to give the big amount, 50p, well, God, trivial, small change. It's not even, wouldn't think twice about it. This is saying, look what God has given. Look what God has given. Then what do you want to add to that? Well, that's, that's trifling compared with what he has done. He's given his son, the Lord of glory, the center of heaven's worship. He gave him for you. What about anything else? Of course. That's, it's hardly worth mentioning. How will he not along with him graciously give us all things? That's the small change compared with what he has done. Wonderful grace. But then what does it mean he will give us all things? Let's look at some of the answers that the Bible itself gives to that question. In 2 Peter chapter 1, the the Bible revels in this. God's sheer generosity, God's lavishness, his willingness to give. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Peter says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That's our God. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. God has given his Son... He's not going to stint now. He's not going to say, well, no, 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 that's too much. I can't give you that. It's like adding 50p to 25,000 pounds. Everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need. Yes, the apostles, as they revel in God's generosity, are walking a difficult path. They're suffering. They're not in some kind of prosperity cult. They're seeing difficulty, but in it all, Everything they need for life and godliness. God is not unwilling to give. He loves giving. I see how Paul expresses it, writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's God kind of lavish. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every blessing of the Spirit. It could be translated, every blessing of the Spirit in Christ. He's given us His Son, that's what Paul is saying, and everything in Him is therefore ours. He has done this. This is how lavish God is. He is our Father. We have become His sons. He knows what we need. And he's a loving father. He's a generous father. 
And we can come to him in expectation of receiving from him. Our thinking can be so blinkered, so restricted. We can pray as if God is an unwilling God. We can come to him with our requests as if, well, it's highly unlikely that he's going to do that. Now, it would be crazy to come back to the, 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 the image that I gave of someone writing out a check for 25,000 pounds. You wouldn't be embarrassed to say, can I have 50p? I mean, they're that generous. Of course, they'll give that. There's no doubt about it. Well, look what, who God is. Look who our Heavenly Father is. Look what he's given. And we come to a father who gives us all we need for life and godliness, who blesses us in the heavenly realms with every blessing of the Spirit. And it says, how will he not also along with him graciously, along with him graciously give us all things? We're in Christ. And if we're in Christ, verse 17 says, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Yes, we're not given a charmed life. We're not given an easy path. We are given tests and difficulties, but he's with us. And he knows what we need. And he's generous. He doesn't turn his face away. Look what he gave for us. He could hardly love us more than he does. He has paid a high price for us. We're precious to him. And he's so generous. He is so, so generous. We don't come to an unwilling God. We don't come to a mean God. Come to a God who loves us more than words can possibly express. The New Testament writers love to speak of the lavishness of God. The Old Testament prophets also spoke of the lavishness of God. They're looking forward to what God is going to do. For just some, one could pick almost anywhere in the prophets, but Isaiah 41 and verse 18. Just get this image of God's sheer generosity. God says, I will make rivers flow on barren heights, springs within the valleys. I'll turn the desert into pools of water, and the parched ground into springs. I'll put in the desert the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I'll set pines in the wasteland. So it goes on, just lavishness, vegetation, plenty where there was nothing. That's God. He loves to do that. The prophet Joel, well, I guess we're very familiar with the words in Joel chapter 2, but read them anyway in Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. Afterwards, I will pour out my spirit. Notice the expression, pour out. Not just give. Pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit. Lavishness, blessed with every blessing of the spirit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then in Joel chapter 3, verse 18. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. Again, 
a prophetic vision of just lavish generosity, the sheer goodness of God. And that day has been released. That day has come. The cross has happened. God has dealt with everything that separates guilty people from him. God has demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing, amazing love. The the Apostle John, writing his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 16, says, From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. That's John's experience. Peter's experience we've looked at, Paul's experience. This was the early church. They knew the sheer goodness of God. Do you? Well, it comes back to what you believe about the cross. It comes back to what we see there. Was it just a human tragedy? Or is this a divine plan of incredible, amazing grace? He didn't spare his own son. He spared Abraham's. He spared us didn't spare his own son. He handed him over. It wasn't the others. It was him. Jesus handed himself over. The son of God who loved me handed himself over for me. It's amazing. This is our God. Well, he's not going to withhold anything necessary. He's not going to be mean. Look at who he is. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? It's a promise. And we've got to believe it. But as we focus on the all things, we mustn't get distracted from the real gift, the amazing gift, the cross. We focus on that. And because of that, everything's included. It changes our value system, of course, as we look at that. And things that we want that maybe fade a bit as we look at the cross. And so it's our needs. We know we have a generous God who supplies all that we need. What he has given eclipses anything that he might give. And all our hope is shaped by that central historical fact. He didn't spare his son. He gave him up for us all. And with that hope in place, we can face anything. And we face it with faith. And we go through life with faith. This is our God. He's for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Is this your God? Is this the one you're trusting Is this the one you're worshipping? Is this the one you love? Is this the one you walk through life with? Because this is the true God. What do you believe about the cross? What was happening there? And does what was happening there change your faith now? Because it should and it can. Let's pray.